Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello, thank you for your company this hour. I think we're going to have a great time together. Another packed show coming up. You're going to meet the creator of this fabulous one-hit wonder. Doing all right. A little driving on a Saturday night. Come walk with me. Gonna dance the day away. Can you name the band? Well, if you said Sniff and the Tears, you're right. Paul Roberts is going to tell us how that song came into being just a little bit later. We're also going to catch up with the only American member of the band Foghat. I bet you didn't know that he was responsible for this song too, did you? actually came up to us in a club and told our drummer, hey, you better start playing some funky music. <laughs> Basically insinuating if you don't, you're going to probably be out of a job. More from Brian Bassett soon. But right now, let's turn to our new music rap. And this week, there's a limited edition three album set from Fleetwood Mac. The tracks are live and studio out on blue vinyl, recorded after Peter Green left the band and before Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham arrived. Fleetwood Mac from the three-album set called Madison Blues. Now, also released this week is Phil Linnett's Songs for While I'm Away. It's Thin Lizzy, The Boys Are Back in Town, live at the Sydney Opera House from 1978. What a shame the world lost Phil Linnett back in 1986. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. I wonder if you've heard of my next guest. She's an incredible roots rock guitarist. Samantha Fish is now 33 years old and she's just released her seventh studio album called Faster. The album debuted recently to huge acclaim and Samantha is riding high. She's devoted herself entirely to her music and has little time for anything else. I asked her to tell me a bit about this latest release. It was one of the weirder recording experiences I'd ever had. It was kind of like refreshing to get to actually sit in one place and just solely focus on writing for several months. I've never really had that experience. You know, I've always been on the road. And so it's like, you know, you kind of get the time and where you can fit it in. And I think you can hear it, the effort that was put in when you listen. Come on, right here. I'm gonna be a little forward. So shy, like that. 
why you're sitting in the corner I'll be nice, I won't bite Well, can you come a little closer? It's alright, I just might Be the type to wanna be a little bold. I wanna through a couple of your favorite tracks okay well i really like playing all ice no whiskey that's a fun one to play just because it kind of has everything that i was trying to do with the record you know it's got a catchy hook it's got a, a guitar moment that's sort of surprising with like twists and turns the context the subject matter is just kind of about empowerment and it's got a great vocal melody and it's fun you know nice people dance to it so that's definitely a fun one to play don't pretend that I offend you with what I'm about to say I seen you fake it till you're breaking shit you know how to play take your inspiration from? I, you know, my life is always a good starting point, but, you know, I also like to tell stories. And so it's not all necessarily autobiographical in my relationships or those people close to me. It's hard sometimes if you stop writing for a while, you know, these things in life, they happen to us. But if you're not like connected to that creative kind of muse and you're not writing consistently, you, you don't always get the inspiration. Writing is like an active exercise that I have to constantly go, okay, I have to get back into this. And it's like working out, you know, it's a muscle. You have to keep working it. Do you have a discipline around it? Well, for the last record, I definitely was setting aside time pretty much every day where I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this a mandatory exercise where I'm going to go and sit in my music room. And I just go, okay, I'm going to make something happen today. And, And there were a lot of days where I couldn't make anything happen. And that's equally as frustrating. I think writing... In the pandemic, too, was also challenging because refreshing to have so much time to work in one space, but also difficult to be inspired in that same space in the same situation over and over again. Now that I'm on the road, my next challenge is going to be okay on my days off when I have that time to myself rather than going and being a tourist or whatever, going to the mall or whatever. I need to go and make that an effort to write. Is there a lot of pressure on you to come up with the next one or is that pressure that you put on yourself? I absolutely put it on myself. I I think there's like a societal pressure now. As an artist, you can ignore it or go with it. I'm a bit of a go-getter, so I put the pressure on myself. I don't think I have like people around me who are like, you have to do this in this time frame, but be nice if I want to continue my momentum. Are you surprised by the success so far? Well, yeah. And also it's a lot of hard work. So when you work really hard, I, I think you start to have expectations. If I put myself in the shoes of myself as a teenage Samantha, I'd be full on shocked because this was just a dream down the line to be able to do what I'm doing. Let's talk a little bit about teenage Samantha because you started out playing the drums, switching to the guitar at the age of 15. I grew up in Kansas City. My father played guitar. All my uncles played guitar, all his friends. My sister played. My mom sang in church. All my aunts sang. So I I kind of felt like music was one of those things that just was always there. And your sister's still playing too? Yeah, my sister still plays. Yeah, she's doing great. It's funny because we were always into music, but it was something, I think because we were so close in age, we were always seeking autonomy from each other. Because when you grow up being that close in age, you're literally lumped in on every single thing. I remember playing on her softball team because I was almost the right age. So they lumped me in with the older kids and I go play with these like giant children (laughs) while I was still really small. You know, we were always getting each other's clothes. So I think when we started music, it was like really important to both of us to have our autonomy and have have it be our thing. Were you really competitive? Absolutely. Like with each other or just in general? No, with each other. 
it's not so black and white. Like, you know, there was a trophy and one of us got it and one of us didn't. But I think that's like a natural thing. Yeah. This latest album, Faster, is your seventh studio album. You owe a lot of your success, don't you, to collaborating with the wonderful Mike Zito? Oh, early on, yeah. Mike Zito kind of like encouraged me to take my first record deal. And you know, I was like a kid, you know, and he used to come through Kansas City and play at this venue called Knuckleheads. And he'd get me up on stage and I'd sit in and jam. And uh, we did that for a couple of years and became friends. There was a point where they were looking for a third member of this band to go on the Blues Caravan for a German record label. So he recommended me. I got the gig and he produced the record. And so we kind of like continued our relationship that we'd been formulating as friends into like associates. And he ended up producing my debut album and then my sophomore album. Samantha Fish, tell me about your slide guitar. You know, when I was playing in a trio, because I started my career, I put together a trio. I wanted to pick up the slide as like a tool for diversity because when you're playing, you know, those long shows, just these three instruments kind of all night long, it could get kind of mundane. So I really, I was utilizing everything I could to make it as diverse and textured as possible. And the slide, it takes them, it's very gentle. It's like, there's a lot of finesse to it. I'm still learning. It's, it's a hard thing, man. I mean, I still struggle with the slide. I have to go really gently with it and just feel it, you know? Behind a stranger's eyes It's a vacancy You don't know It's funny how the wind Howls through the night Like it needs a place to belong Floating through neon Looking for a friend Every face I setting the pace there for women showing women that, that anybody can get up, <laughs> that girls can get up there and take over what's predominantly been a male dominated area yeah absolutely I feel like when I started playing guitar there was a little mental block for me when I wanted to pick up lead and it wasn't anything that I really verbalized but there were times when I was I kind of stopped a little bit short just because I'm like well that's kind of like what guys do and it yeah. sort of put me off for a couple of years almost till I said okay you know I can do this Samantha, with your busy life, though, with, with all the touring, with all the writing, are you going to have time to have children and do the whole domestic <laughs> thing too? You know, I don't know. I, I've thought about it. You know, the older, the older you get, you think about those kind of things. What about the societal norm that I'm supposed to also be balancing and the work, love and family life? I've given thought to it, but for now, this is my life. This takes up so much of my energy and my time and my focus. So I, I wouldn't want to start working on a family or anything if I can't dedicate enough of myself to it to do it well. I love what I do. I don't feel like I'm missing out. I get a lot of pressure. I mean, you understand, like you get pressure in your family or from yeah. people who kind of think like, you have to do this. You have to com complete these tasks as a woman in, in this order, or you won't be fulfilled and happy. And I just don't believe that that really what it is for everyone. I don't, I don't think you have to do these things in order to be happy. I mean, some people are cool with a cat in a, an apartment and a, in a cool job. And some people are happy and fulfilled with the full family. And actually, as, as you were talking, then I just thought to myself, I have never asked a man that question. They could be a single man and doing exactly what you're doing. And I've never stopped to say to him, how come you're not settling down and being a father? The traditional roles are still so ingrained in us. We ask those questions because I mean, I mean, you're, you're a woman, you feel it, you know, you know, 
Oh, but there's a societal yeah. there's a societal pressure and expectation of of what are we as women if we're not fulfilling these roles and I applaud any woman who can go and I, I know a lot of women who tour and have babies and have families at home and they they do it really really well and it's like I'm amazed and in awe of it when I'm ready to do that I'll do that or if I'm not ever then I don't in the meantime though you'll keep pushing out awesome music what are your aspirations in terms of your music well the goalpost is always moving and always a little further out of reach. You know, once I get a little closer to it, I, I reassess and like put it further away. So <laughs> that's like some type of weird mental condition I have. Um, you know, I kind of feel like once I got started on this journey, cause I, I struggled with self-confidence and self-esteem when I was young and just not really believing in myself. Once I realized I can play music for a living and started feeling better about myself, I'm like, oh, I can have a record deal and I, I can tour the country. And oh, people do want to come see my show. And the dreams started to evolve. When I was really young, I, I had these very high expectations, but also I just didn't know how to get there. And now that the roadmap is in front of me and it's kind of still being drawn, the dream's kind of endless. You know, you can... You can dream, you can still dream as big as you want. I feel like I'm still getting started. Some people might say I'm halfway through, but I still feel like I'm getting started and I can kind of take it where I want to. I stacked up all my sins. I push, you won't give in. I must confess to this broken heart. Cause I've been picking locks. And moving through the dark I know you're here But you feel so far You and I could never talk about it You and I could never talk about it Love's no bluff you can't play Fish, thanks a million for your time. It's just been great chatting to you. Thank you. I appreciate your time too. Talk to you soon. I love her passion, Samantha Fish, with the new album, Faster. Coming up, the man responsible for one of the best one-hit wonders of all time. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. So glad you're still with me. I hope you're having fun. Can you guess what time it is? Call me one hit wonder Curse me to the day I die One hit wonder I hit the blunt and just wonder Yes, it's time for our one hit wonders and my next guest is responsible for one of the very best. He's an Englishman who's run a career as an artist in tandem with his music. Remember this one? Roberts still lives off the proceeds of that song from 1978. Driver's Seat later featured in a couple of movies and climbed to number one in 1992 when an ad for car stereos brought in a whole new following. Paul recounts the early days. People talk about the 60s as, as a sort of, as a great explosion. It wasn't. It was only a, a very little explosion, but it had a big impact, you know. That's when I got the first Sniff and the Tears together. This was in about 1971 or two. We did a lot of playing in London around uh, the pubs and the clubs. And, but that was completely different to the Sniff and the Tears that it came. Then I went to Paris for two years. We ended up in Saint-Tropez trying to busk, you know, and, and make some money to survive. 
And we sort of saw some guys doing drawings, and I thought, well, they can't even draw. So I bought a sketchbook and started making an incredible amount of money doing 20-minute sketches of people. We made no money at all busking. I met somebody who uh, wanted me to come to Paris because he knew somebody, he'd get me a record deal. So I said, okay, and uh, he got me a record deal with a, a guy called Jacques Monti, who was a sort of singer, one of those sort of chanteurs, you know, the big French kind of singers. Jacques Monti suddenly disappeared, and this other guy took over, and he wasn't so nice. He wanted to sort of promote me, and we made a single, which didn't do much. He then wanted to make some demos. So suddenly I just had the, I had these demos. And I went back to the UK because the record deal fizzled out and started in a gallery in London, showing with the gallery. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just be a painter. And then one of the guys who was on the original demos, because I made the demos in London, rang me up and he was, and he was the drummer. This was like two years later. He said, I want to take them to a record company. <laughs> Would you mind, you know, if I played them these demos? And that was how the, the new band started, because the, the record company put out Fickle Heart. That came out of that. Which was your favourite track from those? From Fickle Heart. Well, The Thrill of It All, that was, that was one I quite enjoyed. Driver's Seat did very well in America. And the gate said, well, we need a follow-up single. And the manager, who was an American manager, said, we would put out looking for you as the next single, but no American could accept that chorus, which is we all know that the time for the wealthy is through. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you think that's why they didn't take her in? Well, I've, I know that's why they didn't wow. put it out, because that was an unacceptable <laughs> thing to propose to the American people. <laughs> Where the fine foods have been Servants have turned all the lights off Left for the day What could I do? Limousine's gone With the wealth and the fame The people who lived with you From their window We never knew came back to England when that first deal had fallen through in France? Well, not really, because, you know, the record company had changed. When it, when I'd signed to Jacques Monti, I really liked him. He was a nice guy. I felt that there was a real thing there. But he just disappeared. And this other guy took over. I know he signed Madonna through Patrick Hernandez, who was who he had signed. Right. They had a disco hit. It was called Born to be Alive. It was oh, of course. Jean-Claude Perrin got me to fly to Brussels to help them with their lyrics because they couldn't really speak English and they wanted to do English lyrics. And I liked Born to be Alive. And the way they were doing it was not like it ended up. It was more like the Doobie Brothers. And I quite liked that. And I saw it, so I wrote them a lyric. And then when Perrin heard that I'd written the lyric for this song, he said to Patrick, you can't use this lyric because unless you give Paul a credit. And Patrick said, well, I won't use it. Then... Three or four years later, he brought it out as a, uh, what it is, and he did use the lyric. He used my lyric. And uh, never gave you credit. Never gave me credit, no. He changed one word, because I'd written, time is on my side when I was running down the road my life to find. Well, he's French. He doesn't know the difference between road and street. You know, <laughs> the road has a whole nation. So he changed it to street. You know, you don't run down the street to find your life. You know, I mean, that, you get to the corner shop, you know. <laughs> anyway, you know that.
the tears. How did you get that name? And do they still call you Sniff? No, I was never called Sniff. But I mean, the, the, <laughs> the name came about because I suggested the tears. And this is when with the first band back in the early 70s, we had a manager and he said, why don't you call it Sniff and the Tears? And I, uh, he said, because you're always sniffing. I had really bad hay fever at the time, so I was always sniffing. <laughs> then I thought, well, yeah, that sounds quite good. I was sniffing the tears. And so it made it end like rock and roll, you know, just to give it that extra connotation. Oh, but I'm but, very disappointed to hear that you weren't actually ever referred to as Sniff. That would have been a great uh, nickname. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you suffer hay fever ongoing or, or it was just that one bout? No, I used to get hay fever. I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's to do with city life, but, I mean, since I've been in the country, I don't get it anymore. So, well, so how come they never called you Sniff? If the band was Sniff and the Tears and you were indeed Sniff, how come no one referred to you as that? I really don't know. They always called you Paul. Yeah. So boring <laughs> in the UK, aren't they? I would have definitely called you Sniff. I love it. That debut album that you had that you've been chatting about, Fickle Heart, Paul Roberts, gave us all driver's seat, which was an incredible hit. I guess you must have been as surprised as anybody that that went so high up the charts, were you? Uh, yeah, I know. I still don't understand it, to be honest. I mean, I, <laughs> it not not because to me it's it's another song. It's, it's, a, it's an unusual song, I say that, because it doesn't have a sort of standard sort of verse bridge chorus kind of structure, you know. It, it just develops in its own way. But it was a song that I'd been singing around when I was in France. I was singing it, and everybody seemed to like it. It was a song that everybody always sort of said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I like that one. everyone's imagination well i think partly it's the way it was played it's got a great energy and i don't know i mean it somehow it just seems to it, people seem to like it i wish <laughs> I, knew, I, 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 I could do it again you know but no I'm, you must have been in a very good mood though the day that you wrote it well i, I was actually i was living in a i was sharing a flat in hammersmith with an american keyboard player thing and in my room my bed went up against the fridge and um there was a mouse and i think under the fridge and I just thought, oh, God, you know, about three o'clock in the morning, I, I decided to go for a walk to get away from the mouse. <laughs> and I got this, this idea, this, uh, this, this riff in, in, in my head. And so I, I, went, I went back and sort of worked out the chords. And, and so the, the acoustic guitar part was developed there and then because it went with this riff. But it turned out that the riff was very similar to something else. It, it, so I, I abandoned the riff and just stayed with the, with the chords and then wrote the song on, on top of that. That's how it started. And the lyrics, where'd they come from? Well, the lyrics were a breakup of a relationship, really, and how to kind of re-energise and, and be positive and move on. Meanwhile, being philosophical about life's vicissitudes, you know, and, and how, how things are fairly random and unexpected and can't be kind of controlled. Take your place in the driver's seat. It's fairly self-explanatory. It's a sort of like, you know, take control, don't be put off. Out, yeah. out, of, out of the confusion comes hope, you know, and clarity. Interesting you say that. As teenagers growing up with that song, I don't think That's I ever knew. 
think I ever thought it was about that. It was always a great song when you got in your car. That's the way that people, yeah, I mean, it's the way it's been interpreted. And, uh, you know, I think, and people think a little driving on a Saturday night is a lot of people think that's what it says rather than jiving. Oh, I think I was one of them. <laughs> Are you one of those songwriters and that songs sort of drop into your lap? Yes, it is in the moment. And what happens with me quite a lot is I get the first verse and the chorus. And, you know, once you've got that, then you, you've got to sort of like, okay, well, how do I develop this into, a, you know, second, third verse and make it all make sense? So that can be a little bit more long-winded. I've got a song at the moment, which could be a great song. I've got one verse and one chorus, and I've been trying for, for about a month to come up with a second verse, which I'm not doing very well. Is Sniffing the Tears still around today? Theoretically. The last Sniffing the Tears album was 2017, I think, the Random Elements, and that since then, the guitarist, uh, Les, he decided to go out as a sort of, as a duo, just, just me and him, and they really went down well, and it sort of opened up a whole new possibility. Teaming up with Les resulted in an album in, in 2020, didn't it? One called Jump? Yeah, that's right. Did do a couple of tracks, which we'd never had on any other album. There's a song called Man in a Million, I'm going down to the schoolyard to see my children play. I'm going down to the schoolyard, yeah, to see my children play. Somebody must have told them that their daddy went away. He's a man in a million. He's a man in a million. What does the future hold? You and Les will keep taking it out and about? Keep doing it. We definitely do another album and try and get out and play it. Can't wait to discover what's going to come out of you next. We'll see. <laughs> he still makes great music, doesn't he? Paul's paintings are also worth checking out. You can find them at paulrobertspaintings.co.uk. Streaming time again with media critic Alan Craig. Hi, Alan. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. Well, it's been a big week this week with the opening of Elvis the Movie. What did you think of it? Well, I was looking forward to this. A very brave decision, I thought, to make a film about Elvis, and that's why no one's done it for the last 50 years. I thought it was just fantastic. Of course, it's been directed by Australia's own Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, he's a bit of a wanker, quite frankly. Most of his work to date's been overblown and caught up in process rather than the product. This one, I have to say actually delivers. I thought it was wonderful. Young Austin Butler, who's a 30-year-old American guy, plays the lead as Elvis, and I think he does it superbly. And Tom Hanks as Colonel Parker. Well, what can you say about Tom Hanks? He's always fabulous. The thing I'd say about this, Sandy, first of all, is that it is a great story. We all sort of take Elvis for granted. He's been an icon in our lives, and we've just assumed that even though he's not there, the story of Elvis is always there. It's a, a magnificent story. I think it it gives the audience a whole new look into the life of Elvis. I mean, I've been a massive Elvis fan since the year dot, and there was so much about his story that I didn't know. The way that Colonel Parker ripped him off and kept him in his gilded cage, not allowing him to travel outside of the US at all for his own selfish reasons, was fascinating stuff. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I found that Austin Butler as Elvis was totally hypnotic. Did you realise that he actually does all the vocals to the early Elvis stuff himself? I didn't know that until later on. But yeah, he does very well. Of course, this is one of the great codependency stories of all time. And you have to bear in mind that Baz Luhrmann's take on this is very much anti-Parker. The relationship was a, was a strange one and it was, it was there were fault on both sides. The production here is so rich. Most of it was actually done on the Gold Coast in Queensland where they filmed scenes of Beale Street in Memphis and also in Graceland itself. They were all studio sets. 
there were a whole lot of Australians in the cast that you wouldn't expect to be in a movie of this ilk. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, it's probably done for reasons of cost, although they did spend $150 million making this movie. I have to say, I found some of it strangely Baz Luhrmann and off-putting. Some of the montages didn't enhance the story. They were about him showing how clever he is. However, this is a big movie on a, on a big scale and as I said before, it does. He pulls it off. It works. It's too long, though. It is too long. So I found myself smiling through most of it and then being upset through some of it too. It really took me on a journey and it really moved me. Yeah, I think it'll move a lot of people. There are a lot of people who won't know, particularly younger people, who won't be aware of the granular detail of this story. It is, of course, 50 years since the great man died, and so it's a fitting time for it to come out. I'll be fascinated to see how this film does at the box office. I think it'll do fantastically. My best recommendation is for people to actually book themselves seats that relax back where you can put your feet up and get the full experience. Two and a half hours is a big ask to sit bolt upright. If you can get that gold-class luxury, you're in for an absolute absolute treat. Elvis the movie, if it's a visual feast, go and see it. Now they're already talking Oscars for Baz Luhrmann and for Austin Butler. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I'd give it to them. I loved it. I just loved it. Shakespearean tragedy of our time. It's in cinemas now. Go and see it. Thanks for your time today, Alan. My pleasure, Sandy. Thanks, everyone. Don't go anywhere. Next up, your request. We chat to Brian Bassett from Foghat. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Have I told you how much I appreciate you listening to this show? And did I tell you how grateful I'd be if you could help spread the word? All right, so if you're a regular listener, you'll know that this segment is yours. I'll find and interview anyone that you suggest. This week, it's a request from Steve in the US town of Portland, Maine, who noticed that American-based English blues and rock band Foghat were on tour, and he thought it might be interesting to have a chat. So here's guitarist Brian Bassett for you now, Steve, and I certainly didn't know that it was him who formed the band Wild Cherry. Did you? Hello, Sandy. Hello, Brian. Thanks so much for making time to talk to us. Oh, my pleasure. There's a lot about Foghat that I didn't realise. I mean, I grew up through the 70s listening to the music along with the rest of the world, but I never knew the band was even English. It was. It, uh, it all started in London um, after the British invasion band, Savoy Brown. Three of the members of Savoy Brown, which was Lonesome Dave and Roger and Tony Stevens, left and added Rod Price, a British guitarist, and so their roots were all London. in the 70s moved to Long Island, New York and had the majority of their career in the United States. They didn't pick up a huge following in the UK, did they? They didn't at the time, no. And it's funny because Savoy Brown was, you know, a very influential blues band along with John Mayo and that era of blues players. But no, 90% of their touring and their success it all came in the United States. So they started out purely as a blues band. It sort of morphed into this blues rock and you'd have to say these days it's kind of total rock isn't it yeah it's it's just good old rock and roll i mean we always keep our hand in the blues and in fact we did a blues oriented record a few years ago foghead is really almost on every album through the years taking a couple old blues songs and rock them up a little bit you said you were hurting almost lost your mind the man you love he hurts you I believe that that track, Hurts Me Too, is one of your favourites. It is one of my favourites, yes. There's a lot of guitar playing, a lot of blues influences going on in our set right now. Funny enough, the uh, the British Invasion guitarists, I think, gave America back their own heritage when they brought rocked-up versions of classic blues songs uh, you know, in, into uh, the arenas around the country. And all of a sudden, America started discovering you know, all the old blues artists of, of our own. How did you get to join Foghat? 
I was playing in a blues band. I had a, a successful band in the 70s called Wild Cherry. We had a hit song. After that band, I moved to Florida and, and I had a blues quartet called Blue House. We were playing in Orlando and Lonesome Dave, our mutual friend, brought him to see my band. And when he decided to start touring again, he asked me to join. How did he get the name Lonesome Dave? He just picked it up. I guess being a fan of blues, everybody had a nickname, Lonesome Sundown, Lazy Lester. So somehow we got, you know, I guess he was shy. He was actually a very funny and personable person, but, you know, shy in contrast to how he was on stage, which he was a firebrand. Did you ever pick up a nickname? Well, funny enough, I was an altar boy and my name is Brian with a Y. Well, in the little paper that comes at the church, they would spell it with an I. And then occasionally they would misspell that and then I'd be brain bassett. <laughs> Not so much a reflection on my intelligence. My friend started calling me, uh, hey, brain. So that lasted for a while. Brian Bassett, you mentioned before you started the band Wild Cherry. I did. You, ha you had amazing success with Wild Cherry. Tell us about how they came about. Well, there was um in the 70s, now this is early 70s, there was a Wild Cherry in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they had disbanded, and the lead singer, Rob Parisi, went off to manage a restaurant, and I told him, if you ever reform the band, give me a call, which he did some months later. I think, you know, the restaurant business <laughs> didn't sit well with <laughs> Wasn't him. Wasn't as exciting. So he was back to music, and we were a successful club band we were playing rock music and we were playing you know zeppelin all the hits of the day and then the, um the music started changing right around i guess you know when the bgs came out and casey and the sunshine band you know the commodores earth wind and fire all these things started coming out more r&b dance oriented right. and someone actually came up to us in a club and told our drummer hey you better start playing some funky music <laughs> you know so basically insinuating if you don't you're gonna probably be out of a job you know at this club and we had made an you know attempt to uh switch our whole sound into a more dance oriented format like the, the hits that were coming out and we wrote that song in fact that very night uh rob our singer started writing the lyrics to play that funky music on a napkin in the bar and we recorded that song uh we paid for the recording session ourselves and tried to shop it around and we got signed by epic records and and literally a couple months later you know it went up the charts to number one <laughs> Were you by its success? Oh, well, we were, you know, gobsmacked. We were like, whole, you know, just to hear it on the radio in our local <laughs> town was exciting enough, you know, but to see it go national and, and before you know it, we went, we literally went from the clubs into arenas, you know, opening up for big national acts. It's like a miracle. And uh, it was quite amazing to, to play with, you know, one week we were learning their songs to play in the clubs and the next week we're opening for Average White Band, they're opening for the Commodores and Earth, Wind and Fire. We played with all those bands. So yeah, it was quite an exciting time for us. Wow. And what about the guy in the club that had given you the idea? Did he get anything out of that? <laughs> no, no, I never saw him again, you know, and, and, and it's funny, I wish, I wonder who it was. It'd be nice if he popped up and said, hey, I'm the guy that said that. So how long did Wild Cherry last? It lasted for, well, as a club band, we were together a couple of years. So I'd say in five, six years altogether. So the, the whole sound was then superseded again, wasn't it? It was, you know, it styles started changing and, uh, and I wanted to get back into, I was starting to really enjoy bands like Kansas and Sticks, more complicated, you know, music, I guess, you know, and I was wanted to stretch out into that area musically. And look at you now, 50 years later, as Foghat, drawing amazing crowds everywhere to play these days, playing the same stuff and a whole lot more. Yeah, and I think we all found that, you know, I, 
I think uh, musicians, you know, in their heyday think, okay, I got five years to go and then I'll, you know, I'll be out. But what we've uh, luckily found was that our audiences sort of just grew up with us and they still like the music that they liked when we were young and we played when we were young. And so we see a lot of that, you know, our core fans are still with us after all yeah. these years and, yeah. and then bringing their children. Even my daughters, you know, I have a record collection that I was on the verge of giving to my friend that owns a used record store. And they said, no, no, we want them. And so now my daughter's bedroom looks like mine did in the 70s. <laughs> that first Foghat hit, which was Just Wanna Make Love Just To You, wasn't it? You, it right? was in 1972, was produced by Dave Edmonds. So you really ripped it up, didn't it? It, it changed everything and really got Foghat noticed. Yeah, I think that, that was the British blues rock formula, you know, find these old great songs, old blues songs, and, and redo them. The American masters like Willie Dixon wouldn't have believed that English people could do blues like that. They would have never thought in their wildest dreams, right? Right. Brian Bassett, you have actually played so many different styles of music through your career. You've played funk with Wild Cherry or Southern Rock with the band Molly Hatchet and now Foghat for the last 26 years. Is Foghat music the closest to your heart? And it's the one that, yeah, that closely matches the way I naturally play. I mean, I grew up studying, you know, the great guitarists that came out of the John Mayo band, um, you know, and of course, Eric Clapton was a big influence. Peter Green was one of my favorites. Foghead is a very natural style for me, although I really enjoyed my time with Molly Hatchet. I was there for seven years and uh, it was a complicated guitar harmony, you know, so that was very interesting from a player standpoint to learn those long passages of harmonized guitar. Yeah, all of those guys have gone already, haven't they? They're all yeah, departed. Yeah, the so sad. What's your favorite of the classic Foghat songs? Well, 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 Slow Ride, I love still playing it to this day. And, uh, you know, people ask me, you know, when you play a song so many times over and over again, does it get boring? And I, and I say, it really doesn't because every day you get this different feedback loop with the, with the audience. And that's sort of the peak of our show. You know, everyone's on their feet and it's, you know, it's the climax of our show, our, our last song. So I always enjoy that, just that feeling you get from, you know, people having fun and we're you know, the cause of the fun. album that you put out just in 2020 that must have been just pre-pandemic was it it was right point us to the track that you like best on that album i like stone blue on there i get to play a real long slide solo <laughs> i get to scratch out on that one i think we do take me to the river you know which is one of the covers we that. that's a favorite one of mine
you've got some new music coming out again. Every winter when we break down, you know, after the touring season, we have a, a studio down in uh, Central Florida, and that's where we rehearse. So we'll prepare for the next year's concerts and add some new songs. Right. After we finish touring, we'll start writing again. And But every two years, we seem to put something out, and we alternate live records with studio records. You know, not like the old days where we would go out for months at a time on a tour bus, but the way we travel now, we go out three, four days a week, play a couple concerts, come back. That's a perfect schedule for me. I keep my playing skills up and uh, still get to play for our fans. And then I don't get bored at home. <laughs> I drive my wife crazy. That's great. Brian Bassett from Foghat, really a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Andy. My pleasure. Thanks for suggesting Foghat, Steve. I wish they were on tour here. Do you have someone you'd like me to find for you? Well, if so, just get in touch. Sandy at a breath of fresh air.com.au and I'll do my very best to make it happen. Now, if you like what you hear on this program, the good news is that A Breath of Fresh Air is now also available as a podcast. So if you'd like to hear more, look up your favourite artist or share the show with your friends, just search for A Breath of Fresh Air on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You could also do me a huge favour by leaving a rating and review and maybe even subscribe. Thanks again for being with me today. I'll look forward to your company again same time next week. Have fun until then, won't you? Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.